Listeners should be advised that some of the content in this episode of Inside the Crime could be distressing to some. In episode one of Inside the Crime, we met Nancy and Christy Whelan. They welcomed us into their home in Winegap, County Kilkenny, and bravely shared their story with us over a strong cup of tea and a generous spread of biscuits. Their story, we learned, began in a dance hall in London in the 60s. Ah, well, he didn't ever drink or smoke, so... All he wanted to do was dance. (laughs) He was a great dancer. (laughs) Oh, it was uh, two weeks after that, like, we we met, like, you know, and we met down this Sunday, like, we used to go out for a walk around the parks and stuff like that, like... So that's where our life began. Nancy and Christy got married in Ireland and after having their first child, Jacqueline, they decided to move home for good. Tragically, Jacqueline died just shy of her first birthday. She was starting to toddle and Nancy had bought her first pair of shoes. Sadly, it wouldn't be the last time tragedy darkened their door and in the last episode, They, along with their eldest son, John, told us how it came knocking once more. This time, on Christmas morning, 2008. Christy answered the knock, and with it, their lives changed forever. Their daughter, Sharon's home, a rented farmhouse she lived in with her two girls, Zara and Nadia, was on fire. I'll never forget when that man set Sharon's house on fire. And then she says, what's wrong? And I tried to get her shoes and all, like, you know. I was looking for something to, to hang on to, to say that they're OK. Um, and then he rang me on the mobile. I remember being just walking up and down at the gable end of the house there. So I said, I go around the back to see what's in the sheds. And some man screamed. But I didn't know until afterwards that they had the three bodies on the ground outside. And they didn't want me to go in and see the three bodies. And he came back and he says... They're all gone. Gone. We kept running around the place. I say, gone, where are they gone? They're all dead, he said. Watching the news unfold from afar that day, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this was a dreadful accident. And that's exactly what the Whelans first thought too. In my head, I said, Jesus, did she leave candles around? Was it electrical? What caused that? I remember saying all the time, what are we going to do? What do we do without him, you know? What happened to him? First of all, you'd be thinking, like, they were thinking it was an electrical fault, you know, or I did there was just an accidental landing. Nothing came into my head in the line of somebody going in to murder my daughter. What happened to Sharon and her two beautiful girls was no accident. Somebody was responsible. Somebody had taken their lives. But who and why? In this episode of Inside the Crime, we'll speak to two detectives who played key roles in answering those questions. It was Christmas 2008. A family was grieving. A community was reeling. A killer was on the loose. Hello. Hi, Brian. It's Frank here from Newstalk. How's it going? Not too bad, yourself. 
All good. I'm on the road now down to Kilkenny and I, sh I should be there well before four o'clock. You're at the Gar Club, is it? It's the O'Loughlin I'm back on the road to Kilkenny. That's Brian Murphy. He's retired now, but in 2008 he was a detective stationed in Kilkenny and he was one of the key investigators in the Whelan murders. With Christy and Nancy's blessing, he's agreed to meet me to talk about the case. Brian was off duty on Christmas Day that year, but he was on call as the station's crime scene examiner. And sure enough, the call came in. He'll never forget it. I was off duty and I got a phone call to go to the scene of a fire in Roskan Wine Gap. Now generally, Christmas days are very, very quiet and house fires are unusual, but this was uh, a fatal house fire, which made it even more unusual. So I went to Roscan and uh, there was a lot of activity there at the time and uh, you had a lot of um, Gardaí fire people and neighbours around because it had got out at that stage uh, how serious the fire was and the fatalities that were involved. Do you have any idea, Brian, I know we're going back um, quite a while, but do you have any idea what time it was that you left your family on, on Christmas Day to go to the scene of that fire? And at what stage was the salvage operation, I suppose, at that point? Had the bodies been taken out? Was the, was the house still on fire, still smouldering? What, what was the scene like? The scene, I would have left to my home maybe around 11 o'clock. Um, but the, the scene when I arrived there, the fire had been put out because the neighbours had spotted smoke coming from the, the farmhouse early in the morning and um, the fire service had been called. And uh, the neighbours who went down to, to the farmhouse, the, the fire was ablaze, the house was ablaze at that time and a number of the neighbours first uh, attempted to get in the front door and they, were, they couldn't because of the flames and they went around the back, the back of the house and um, they managed to break a window, break windows and uh, one of them got in uh, to, to the, the only room in the house that hadn't been um, damaged by the fire at that stage and uh, when, the person, when the person went in there um, found the three bodies inside there of Sharon, Nadia and Zara and was able to remove them and remove the bodies and um, give them out to the people outside. Well, Jim, how's it going? Hi, Frank. Nice to meet you. And you too. We'll take a seat here, will we? Jim Ling also got the call that Christmas morning. Unlike Brian, he was on duty. At the time, he was a detective sergeant, also stationed in Kilkenny. Unsurprisingly, he played a huge part in this investigation. From the very start, he described his role as all-encompassing. He's also agreed to bring us inside the crime. Jim went to Mass that morning, but had to drop everything when he got word of the fire at Sharon's house. I had actually stepped out and gone to a, a religious service and I wasn't there long when I, my phone started to vibrate and I stepped out and answered and I was told there was a fire in a um, Callan sub-district in a place called Wine Gap and that there was believed to be fatalities. So I immediately went to the scene and, um, you know, encountered what was a really horrific scene, really. There was fire personnel there, guards, the um, main, the road leading to the house was uh, cordoned off and um, 
uh, there was paramedics and ambulance crew there and they were just about to leave the scene with um, unfortunately Sharon and her two children and at that stage it was um, they had been pronounced dead. Um, what time was it that you arrived and how long had the emergency services been there at that stage? Well my understanding is or my memory is that the call was made by to the Garda station by the fire service to say that they were at the scene of the fire and uh, I would have been there probably sometime after 10 o'clock and at that stage uh, it was obvious the fire personnel had been there for some time and the local Gardaí were there and um, yeah, the fire had totally taken hold of the farmhouse and it was absolutely gutted by that stage. The fire personnel, the fire chief was there and he was, uh, he was in charge of the actual um, uh, the attempts to um, save the house as much as they could but it had gone past that and the ambulance personnel were there. So um, my recollection would have been just merely making sure that as little trespass as was possible was done at the scene and that uh, we would organise the, the preservation of the scene from, from then right until uh, we would be returning it back to its um, to its owner. I know as a very experienced and senior Garda, you know, you, you come across dreadful stories all the time. But, you know, Christy talked about, Sharon's father, Christy, talked about going down there that morning. Um, was he there when you arrived? I mean, how distressing was it? I know some members of the community had actually gone in and taken the bodies of Sharon and the two girls out. Were they still there? Were you concerned with the amount of people who were actually at the scene? Well, that would have been the primary concern, um, getting as many people away from the scene as possible, except, of course, the fire brigade personnel who were at that stage in charge of the scene. Um, I don't recall, I probably did speak with Christy on the day, but I certainly would have spoken to him at length um, the following morning. Um, it was very distressing, it was very distressing for the people that were there, but to be fair, they all did depart the scene very, very quickly. And um, yeah, there was a general air of, I suppose, complete shock at um, something like this happening on, on, a, on a, any time of the year, but particularly on Christmas morning, I suppose, added to the poignancy of the whole thing. So like the Whelans, Garthy initially thought they were dealing with a tragic but accidental house fire. However, experience had taught detectives like Jim Ling and Brian Murphy that the best tool an investigator can have is an open mind. Remember those brave neighbours who recovered the bodies from the burning house? Well, one thing they all noticed was that Sharon's body was quite stiff. But the girls weren't. Paramedics said the same thing, which suggested that Sharon died sometime before the girls. Quite some time, actually. But all the bodies were found in the same room. That just didn't make sense. And its significance wasn't lost on an experienced detective like Jim. The first red flag was raised, and it wouldn't take long for his suspicions to be confirmed. Their view that Sharon had been quite stiff when they were removing her, and the ambulance personnel likewise would have reported that um, Sharon was quite stiff, while the two children were quite the opposite. They were still warm and quite supple. And and how soon afterwards then? It was, I think, Professor Mary Cassidy, was she the one who conducted the post-mortem? Well, initially the, the bodies were removed to um, Waterford University Hospital for post-mortem by a local pathologist. And that was uh, conducted the following morning. And um, 
I recall receiving a call. I was out, out the country trying to um, locate a distant relative of Sharon's to break the news when I got a phone call from the guard on duty at Waterford University Hospital to state that the local pathologist had stopped the uh, post-mortems as he had, he, um, his post-mortem examination had disclosed that Sharon had died prior to the fire. So that totally changed the situation from our point of view and from everybody's point of view. Um, obviously, there was no fire damage in her lungs, and that's how the pathologist came to that conclusion that Sharon was most <coughs> likely already dead when the fire had been set. Um, there were also marks on her neck. Were they were they noticed in the initial post-mortem, or did Professor Mary Cassidy, was she the one that spotted those? Because they obviously would have suggested that she had met a violent end. Yeah, it, the bruising on the body was commented upon by the local pathologist. However, it wasn't seen as being terribly significant at that stage until Dr. Cassidy, uh, Professor Cassidy, carried out her examinations over the following days, and it was a number of days, and um, her, she reported comprehensively to us some days later, and it was obvious that Sharon had died by strangulation, and she had also... It was defensive wounds on the body, and it was pretty obvious that she had suffered um, a very, very violent death. What happened then? How does the guard investigation shift then? It goes from perhaps inconclusive, suspicious, most likely you know, a tragic accident, certainly looking at it from afar, that's how it looked. But then when the pathologist tells you this, and the evidence suggests otherwise, what happens within the investigation team? Well, there's a whole change of focus, obviously. Initially, if it had been, as you've suggested there, just one of these tragic incidents, then um, a file would be prepared for the coroner. I would imagine from talking to the um, fire um, personnel on the morning that it would have been very, very difficult to state conclusively how the fire started, as the, the house had been totally uh, gutted, as I said earlier. So our focus then changed from being um, an investigation with the view of preparing a file for the coroner to one of um, a full-scale murder inquiry. And it would, would have been officially um, announced to be a murder inquiry following um, Professor Cassidy's um, uh, reporting on her findings. And what was your main priority at that point then? Because they say the first few days of any murder investigation are the most important. What did you what did you think were the most important jobs to get ticked off your list at that point when it became a murder investigation? Well, I suppose experience would show that more often than not, um, the murder can be contained within a community or within within the within reach of a community. So I suppose initially um, investigation would, would start off with Sharon's movements, um, last known movements, um, maybe movements for the previous 24 hours, seven days, a month, whatever. Following on from that also, um, house-to-house inquiries at all the local uh, nearby neighbours, etc speaking with her family, with her closest friends, um, examining her phone records. It's, it's a multitude, canvassing the area for CCTV footage. I could go on and on. It, it, it's, there's a multitude of things that needed to be done. And then the guards came 
all the girls came in and then um, they were telling us like you know that's so crazy, what so. we're after finding and what would happen like so the deaths yeah, became suspicious yeah the deaths were suspicious so then the head man of the girls came the superintendent was missing mm-hmm. and he brought me and Nancy into a room and he said um, I'll never forget that we are treating this as murder when he said the autopsy has shown that I was on the bed I couldn't that there was no smoke in Sharon's lungs. Uh, so she had died before the fire. But there was in the children died of smoke inhalation. And I was speaking to Dr. Crawley and I asked Dr. Crawley, did the children suffer? And he said, Christy, he said, the children went to sleep, he says, and never woke, he says. They wouldn't have felt a thing. I'm no. sure and guarantee you that, he says. They went to sleep, he says, but they never woke, he says. Mm-hmm. So then they started then on Sharon's about the it all started out then. Then I asked the question, um, I don't know who was just I asked, was was at the fire, you know, how did the children who brought the children out? And they told me there was two farmers' sons bringing in cattle and they seen the smoke and they ran down. And one of the chaps says, oh, I know which room, because he was a plumber. And he was after doing up the room for Sharon, putting in an extra heating into the room. And he says, I know where they are, he says. And he said to the brother, I'm going in, he says. And if I'm not out, he says, you know where I am, he says. And that man went through the window and he brought out Sarah, Nettie first. And then he'd taken out Zara when he tripped over Sharon cover over with a blanket on the ground and he went back and now this chap went to school with Sharon, with Sharon yeah. in Ballahill and he took Sharon out. I spoke to their father and he says, I said like there should be, you know, chap should be, I know he said Christy, he said look, they just don't want to be and I said to him, well you can tell him, I said we'll never be able to thank them enough mm. for all that they've, they've done for us. They didn't just want to know anything more about it, like, you know, they were that. Yeah. And they were, that, was, that was a brave... Oh, he put his own life at risk, uh, not, not knowing what was... Not knowing what he was facing in there. That young man who entered the burning house and all those who risked their lives to pull the bodies from the flames have never spoken publicly about their heroics. They didn't want to, and none of the people we interviewed for this podcast betrayed their wish to stay out of the spotlight. Little did they know, though, that what they did that morning would prove absolutely vital in the investigation that followed, as Brian Murphy now explains. The neighbours who were so brave in in going in and retrieving the bodies because, as I said, uh, this was the last room in the house that wasn't damaged, and there was always a danger that it could have collapsed and plus obviously the fire service coming and, and um, putting out the fire pretty, which saved the last remaining room in the house where the Sharon and the children were. I mean, it could have been that all the evidence would have been destroyed if that room was have been destroyed. And you would only have then is just um, a fatal accidental fire. That's what could have been the outcome. In particular, their actions ensured one key piece of forensic evidence didn't go up in smoke. 
It would give the detectives a snapshot of what happened that night. It would sharpen their focus, and they hoped it would lead them to the killer's door. The post-mortem revealed marks on Sharon's neck. She also had bruises on her body. It was obvious she'd been attacked and strangled. She had defensive wounds too. The young mum of two had fought her attacker. But as Jim Ling tells me here, it was another one of Professor Mary Cassidy's findings that would help to break this case. And this one was sure to also break the Whelan's hearts all over again. Dr Cassidy reported that um, Sharon had been victim of a, a violent sexual assault and was semen present and a DNA profile was established. So we knew then that we had um, uh, evidence there that would place um, somebody at the scene and um, obviously then our efforts were all focused on finding this uh, person. As soon as the evidence pointed to murder, everything ramped up within the incident room at Kilkenny Garda station. The station, which is about a 20-minute drive from Winegap, became the epicentre of the investigation. It was a buzz of activity, with Jim Ling divvying up the jobs for the rest of the investigation team. No stone would be left unturned. And while they got busy trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, the Whelans were preparing to say a final farewell to their three angels. Their home is getting underway at Wangap. The bodies of 30-year-old Sharon Whelan and her daughter, 7-year-old Zara and 2-year-old Nadia, were discovered on Christmas Day morning. RD are keeping an open mind into the cause of their deaths as an investigation continues today. Crowds of people have been making their way to St Nicholas Church in Wangap for the funeral this morning. Our Ashling Moore is also there. Ashling, sad scenes, I'd imagine. Absolutely, Edwina. Hundreds have gathered here in the tiny village of Winegap this morning to pay their respects to Sharon, Nadia and Sarah. Dozens of cars followed the hearse from Callan as it left Malloy's funeral home this morning for the service which is about to begin in the next few minutes. I remember the funeral coming out from Callan to Winegap and the first thing I noticed was on either side of the road the, there was a kind of a, there was a guard of honour on either side from the Horland Club, the Camogie Club handball, all the, the community sports and community uh, committees and everything to do with, with Winegap and Tullahock to the parish. And it was just massive the whole way in. And then I remember getting out of the car and, and going standing at the back of the, the hearse. And it was like faces started to come out of a fog and I kind of, kind of I, I looked and I, it, there was just one row of people, and then I see another row and another row, and it just seemed to go back forever. I remember the funeral going up to the graveyard, like in the three coffins, you know, and then there's people around to, to get the straps and put the coffin down, and I just happened to be standing back, and they came to Zara's coffin, and there was only four or five lads, and there was one vacant, and had Around to take a turn to somebody else. It just happened to me, me, and I just walked up and I just took that step. And then they shot him. Zara down into the grave. I don't think that was by chance, Christy. No, it was something. Uh, I, I think you would like, you know, I was just standing beside her, like, you know, and next thing he just turned to me and he said, Christy, he said, no, I think Sarah wanted you to you be know, the one to hold that strap. And there's a, 
little hurl in the coffin and you know it was going down and even the chairman of the county board at the time was Nicky Brennan and he said he'll never forget as long as he lives and even at the grave people come up and shake your hands now it wasn't just a shake hands it was a squeeze mm. my hand was nearly turning blue I tell the way people were squeezing on my hand as they came all up along you know what I mean? I, I nearly had to put up my left hand to try and, and give my right hand a, 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 you know what I mean? It's for that much. Yeah. The DNA evidence found on Sharon was a major breakthrough for the investigation team. But it was only a major breakthrough if they found a match. With every passing day, the people of Wine Gap became more and more anxious. They were scared. The killer was still out there. They wondered, is he among us? Could he strike again? Time was of the essence. Every second counted. Brian and Jim felt that pressure within the incident room in Kilkenny, but they had a job to do. And finding a match for the DNA sample left behind was their top priority. The fact that there was uh, DNA, it meant that uh, it's... Um well, it was, a great, it was a great benefit to the investigation itself. And what was done at that time, all people that were, you know, had access to the house and neighbours and guardie and uh, fire service. And as anybody that was visited the house, they were asked to give samples. Yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about um, what the outcome would have been had the bodies been destroyed beyond recognition and for all the forensic evidence that was taken from Sharon's body um, had been destroyed. Um, who knows what the outcome would have been then. Um, however, the fact that these young men entered the house and removed the bodies intact, and it was a huge source of comfort, I'm sure, to the Whelan family that that did happen. And it was heartbreaking for them to see the two children in particular were, you know, probably not far from save it being saved and um, yeah that's how it turned out and um, the fact that they did get the bodies out in particular Sharon's it, it did give us something really in our hand to work with with regard to um, seeking to solve um, the crimes um, I think it's fair to say that it was a, a vital clue that had been left behind but it was only significant if you could find a match for it so how did you then go about taking samples from people? How wide was the net that you cast? Um, did you have a profile in mind? You know, did you think that this was potentially somebody that knew Sharon? Yeah, that, that would have been absolutely foremost in our minds. However, in the initial trawl, um, uh, we didn't have anybody at all in particular in mind, um, no one individual. And initially, um, to eliminate all um, DNA evidence, you know, any any p potential DNA evidence that might be disclosed later and with regard to the DNA samples that we did have, it was decided that in the initial stages we would um, fingerprint and uh, swab, take swabs from all the personnel who were at the scene, including fire personnel, ambulance personnel, those young men who came and took out the bodies and then people who would have had any reason to call it, mem all members of her family, um, neighbours, um, postmen, 
oil delivery men, any anything of that nature. We 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 trawled all of that with the help of of, um, of Sharon's family. We built up a list and other neighbours, and that we built up a list for the initial stages. And I think initially we had a batch of somewhere near eighty. Um, uh, fingerprinted and swabbed all attended at the Garda station by consent and they would all have signed forms you know consenting and also consenting to the fact that any of the findings could be given in in, in evidence in any potential court case or whatever so that's how it progressed at the beginning and um, we agreed with the forensic science laboratory that we would send uh, the, the uh, samples in batches of 10 at a time and the first sample went and there was nothing to report and then in the second sample we were informed that, um, that there had been a hit. The horrific nature of what Sharon endured the night she died was now clear. Not only had someone murdered the family but she'd been raped and then strangled before the farmhouse was set on fire. All that was left for Garthy to do was to find out who did it. And now, they had a suspect. Brian Hennessy, a local lad, had slipped onto their radar for two reasons. Firstly, he'd been in Guinan's pub in Winegap on Christmas Eve, the night of the murder. And Garthy took statements from everyone who was in the pub that evening. They wanted to know if anyone had noticed anything or anyone suspicious in there. Secondly, he was a sub-postman for the area, and he would have actually delivered mail to Sharon's home. That's why he was among those asked to give a DNA sample. Oddly enough, he'd also been asking people in the village if the fire had brought down the roof. That raised a few question marks too. Hennessy grew up in Winegap. He was just 23 at the time. He lived just up the road from Christy and Nancy, and after giving his sample, he must have known Garthy would come knocking. And they did. Here's how the Whelans found out. Our liaison officer came down one evening to us and he said they're after making an arrest or they're, they're interviewing somebody. He phoned and he says, I'll be there in three minutes to the house. Yeah. And I looked at Nancy and he says, a liaison officer, it'll take him more than three minutes to come from Kilkenny to my house. Yeah. I said, there's something else to happen. And with that, the phone rang. And it was Nancy's brother said, there's some activity above in the street. The whole place is covered with guards. And then the liaison officer came in. He said that, that they were after making an arrest. And Brian Hines has been taken in for question. I nearly died. I so then I knew... That's where the garage was above in the street. When he walked in from work, they let him go in. So when they went in, they took him back out then. To clear out, all the rest of the family was taken out of the house and he was the last to come out. So they arrested him outside the door. Um, Nancy, you, you said there you knew his whole family. Like oh. When you received that piece of information that Brian Hennessy Brian had been Hennessey, around, what was going through your mind? Um, first of all, the, the grandmother, his grandmother, when we were small, she was so good to us. And every time I met, she met me or ran into me, you know, and the tears would be rolling down her face and she'd hold my hand and she said, I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed. Say hello, what you? I said, Annie, I said, 
was only the hands. We don't blame anyone, only the hands that did us. And I said, please, Andy, I said, don't be crying. I said, it was his doing, not yours, I said. Chrissy was obviously very well known in the community. He was a young man, but he was working as a, as a postman. And was he hurling as well in the pitch yeah, right beside you? He used to be down training with us uh, in the field. Like, you know, we knew him well. He was down there playing hurling for Wingap and training and all. Like, you know, uh, we knew him well. Like, you know, I used to meet him delivering the post and, and, and all. Like, you know what I mean? So that was an awful shock like, to know that somebody that... Somebody that knew so well. That lived so well and to do such... You know what I mean? Comes from a good family, yeah. good community, every chance in life and yeah, yeah. just doesn't make sense. And it's never easy to lose a loved one, I'd imagine, in these awful circumstances. But when you know who's responsible, mm. that makes it all the much harder, doesn't it? And, and the fact that he, that he just carried on yeah. As if nothing happened. Did you know him at all? I no, I wouldn't have known him at all. Um, I, would, I would know the name. I would know the, the family, but I wouldn't have. I would have never have met Brian. Yeah, would you know people belonged? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I would have heard of his cousins and things like that, and, and my brother Paul would have. And that's the thing in a small, tight knit community like that. Like, but and what about Sharon? Because he had suggested that they did know each other. They would have known each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they would have known each other, but they. They never went out with each other, each other or anything like that. But, you know, um, they would have. It's the same as uh, anyone would know each other in the community, like you know what I mean, and, and, and no more than that. Brian Hennessy was arrested on January fifteenth, two thousand and nine, three weeks after the murders. That gave him plenty of time to think before he was taken in for questioning. And again, he wouldn't have been surprised to find himself on their radar, given how he must have known that his DNA sample would at the very least, put him at Sharon's home on that tragic Christmas night. Jim Ling and Brian Murphy were part of the team chosen to interrogate him. On the face of it, the DNA evidence was strong, but on its own, it wasn't enough. They needed more. So how did they approach their interviews with Brian Hennessy? In the next episode of Inside the Crime, we'll take you inside the interrogation room where Jim and Brian came face to face with the man they believed to be the killer. Science and a touch of good luck had led them to Hennessy's door, but old-fashioned police work held the key to opening it. What secrets did Hennessy have to hide, and how would they get him to share them? The Whelans sat by their phone again. The pressure was on, the clock was ticking. Prior to his arrest, every person we'd interviewed, none of them noticed anything untoward about him. He was quite calm. He had been back at work for a few days after the murder and had been behaving in a normal manner around the time Christmas Day. Having food with the family. Attending the funeral. Could I have seen him there and not, not recognised her? Could I have been looking at him straight in the eye and him looking at me? I don't know. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on newstalk.com forward slash podcasts or on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud for episode three of Inside the Crime out next Tuesday. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart.